I realised that this was going to fail if I didn't change the way that I was managing the team and managing the business. Welcome to Long-Term Thinking for Business Success, a show for and by business owners. Each episode will explore how to beat the odds and create a sustainable business and the life we've dreamt of. Today's guest is Colin Fisher from Aquacell Water Recycling, the business he founded in 1996. Aquacell designs, builds, and operates water recycling schemes in Australia and the US and holds private water utility licenses. Colin and his team design water recycling solutions to save their clients time and money. Hi, Colin. Welcome to the Long-Term Thinking for Business Success podcast, and thank you for joining us. Hello, Rick. Nice to be here. To start off the conversation, which is how I start off most of my podcasts, we're getting you to tell us a little bit about Aquacell. What's the change you want to make? Or to put that another way, what's the vision or purpose that you're trying to deliver and who do you hope to help? It's interesting you pick up on the word purpose there, Rick, because that's been an integral part of what we've done for at least 15 of the 27 years that we've been operational. We recycle water with major population growth and climate change that these two things are conspiring to put really major on water resources. And so we're part of that solution. And it's a really energizing thing when you're a business that, while like most other businesses, we have to run in an efficient and profitable way. We are really focused on making sure that we can serve water. You know, we go by this mantra that we exist because we believe water should be used more than once. What we do is half the water consumption or, or more over any building or new residential development. And if you half the use, well, you got twice as much to, to play with. And that is a big part towards solving water problems around the world. We're a small part of that. There are a lot of other solutions to it, but it certainly gives me and our team great satisfaction when we visit one of our plants that we have built and we stand beside it and we see dirty water come in and clean water come out that can be used for primarily non-drinking purposes. It's very satisfying. Sure. And look, we'll come back to that because you mentioned one thing that is really key to us around making sure that the leadership team understands the purpose and yours is definitely a profound purpose, but the whole team understands that and rallies behind that. So I won't explore that now, but I do want to come back to that. Just to follow up, typically though, who do you work with? Who are your clients, both Australia and in the US? Developers are our primary clients. They're they're the people who build high-rise buildings or they will develop residential land. And in addition to that, though, we do work with government organisations, university campuses, corporations who might be developing a campus in the US, for example. We've done work with people like Salesforce and Facebook and Apple, Google. And here in Australia, it's the more forward-thinking property developers typically who are looking to do things other than business as usual. That's a great segue. And I expect you more than most people understand how society's understanding of how we use water has changed significantly in the 27 years since you started Aquacell. I'm really interested to understand the origin story and what drove you to start Aquacell and some of the early challenges that you've had to face working in what at that point, I imagine, was quite an emerging market. Yes, it's, it's got an interesting starting story. And I 
was working in the water space in the US prior to coming back with my young family and deciding what I should do next. And I didn't immediately go straight into water recycling. It's something that was one of the unintended luxuries of having your own business is that you start in one direction and then you realize that you can take the business in a different path that ignites your passion. I'm an engineer by training. I had worked in a number of different technical roles and business development roles, general management roles prior to starting the business. And most recently, I was an international sales manager for an American company and traveling around mainly North and South America, but also into Asia, trying to develop business for for this American company. And then when I came back, I, I took a very conservative path. I looked at how I could start my business without having to really start from ground zero. So I negotiated a contract with my previous employer to continue to do some some sales management, which was going to take half of my time and gave me the luxury to be able to try to develop the business to stand alone so that I was no longer reliant on that on that contract. And and that's really pretty much what happened. And our first clients were with people like Sydney Water and Rio Tinto supplying environmental equipment for water treatment. And so it was really solving regulated environmental problems. And over the course of time, did more of that. But what really got me into this whole water recycling in urban areas was we did a small part of the Olympic Games, which was in 2000 in Sydney, which there was a recycled water scheme there for the Olympic Village, which is now a suburb of Newington, and the Olympic Games facilities, the stadiums, the various facilities around Olympic Park, where they take sewage and stormwater, treat it to it can be reused for toilet flushing, for cooling towers, for irrigating the sporting fields and facilities. And I thought that was fascinating and wondered whether or not it's something that we could do more of. Then I did some analysis on water consumption patterns in really the eastern seaboard of Australia and found that drought or no drought, there was at that time about a 6% over allocation of water. There was not enough to go around. And it stunned me to figure that out. And we're in a relatively normal rain period. And I thought there is genuinely an opportunity to do something about this. When analysing these larger centralised reuse schemes like the Olympic Park, there was a significant amount of money going into pipes and pumping and the the recycled water technology was not the major cost component. And that led me to think, well, if we could build some technology that could recycle water at a household level, then instead of kilometres of pipes and pumps and all the energy associated with that and disrupting building roads and ripping them up and all of the rest that goes with it, do it with metres of pipe rather than kilometres Surely that's a better way. I set about trying to find some technology that would do that and couldn't find anything. And this was in the fairly early days of the internet. You know, this was around 2000. And I did find some examples, but nothing that was really successful. And it was never my intention to develop our own because I know that kind of research and development is very expensive. And at this time, I was a sole operator. I was passionate enough to do it. And There were a few bones in the graveyard, but eventually settled on a process where I could treat the grey water from my house, which was up in the Blue Mountains, and recycle it for the toilets, and it succeeded. My kids certainly remember me waking them up when they'd just gone to bed when I'd got the first decent quality water out of this thing and said, look, guys, look at this, (laughs) and then proceeded to drink it, and I know they thought I was mad, but I think it's the only time I've ever drunk the water from a a recycled water plant because it is non-drinking water, and it looks 
potable water. It doesn't have any colour or smell, but it's not drinking water. It's, yeah. not, it's not permitted for that. So that was a really interesting and exciting time for me. And as I said earlier, this is the way I wanted to go. I thought this is really what helps me deal with all the things that every business owner, especially starting up, deals with. How do you get out of bed in the morning and try to do something when you don't have much revenue and you're trying to build a business and all that goes with it. Then over the course of the next couple of years was further developed the technology, ran some pilot plants, got some customers on board and started to sell them commercially. And then was able to really give up dealing with the mining companies. And even though it wasn't an environmental cleanup, just the, the sector didn't interested me as much as what we were doing in the water sector. As I said, it was an unintended luxury. That set us on this path and probably for a long, a long time financially when it happened, when the mining was going through, started going through an unprecedented boom and I thought really maybe financially this wasn't such a great idea, but I just knew all the time that I was glad that I did it and, and then have continued to do it over the course of time. So that really got some traction in around 2005. And that was the start of the millennial drought. And so we'd been talking to enough of the property developers, you know, the major property developers that were interested, various organizations were interested in what we were doing. And then all of a sudden they needed us. So we started to sell systems, mm -hmm. which we wouldn't have had it not been for the drought. So there was a bit of luck involved, yep. but we got to start before all that came. And so that helped us get a get a jump start on what was an emerging market. And really, Rick, I still feel like it's an emerging market. That's a fantastic story. Thank you for that. I've got a couple of follow-up questions to start with. That You mentioned that there was a point, the drought that drove it, that suddenly the prospects that you imagined been talking to for a while were more interested because they had their own problems given by the drought. The follow-up question is how much at the beginning of the story and the formation of the business was just educating the market and educating products versus actually trying to sell them? The other way to think about the question is what was the level of knowledge in the market or were you just trying to just get people to understand that water is an area where they can be more, not just from an environmental saving, but from a commercial value for them? A lot, and it still goes on. It's matured quite a bit in Australia because I think as a country, we're much more conscious of water issues than most other countries. And But still, when people are talking about sustainable development, they almost immediately default to energy and now carbon neutrality. Water typically is the second or third thought because it's Viewed as cheap, it's viewed as still there. You, know, you whack a desalination plant on the out in the ocean, and it's problem solved. Well, it's not. It's there's a lot of infrastructure that goes into it, and we have to educate people as to why this is a good idea. And not everybody gets it. We're always on that mission. And what we have learned over the course of time is how to pitch that to our target market better. That helps us a lot getting the scale and the scope right as to what we do. and But to start off with, I mentioned we'd built these little plants in my house and then a couple of pilot plants. We really had to show people that this was possible because we'd be talking to them and they wouldn't grasp it, understandably. You know, their activities were very different to what water recycling is. So being able to show them a physical example made the world a difference and really demystified it. Yeah, for sure. That's great. Thank you for that. The other question that I wanted to jump back to, which I, I'm sure is very common for 
lots of especially professional services in the, i know you're not a professional service but for an engineer driving into it or other businesses similar where we start a business and to manage risk we remain part-time working with our current employer or something like that as you said you remained in your sales role at what point in the early years when you were still working part-time trying to develop the job what drove the decision to jump ship and kick it off had you by that point generated enough revenue and projects to sustain you and bring on other people or what was the journey around that how did you make the decision to to jump yeah it was really about generating enough revenue through traction from sales and this was really before that that happened where i discontinued mutually the contract with my american employer it took probably about 2 years before i was able to generate enough revenue for activities outside that contract to then I went to my employer in America and renegotiated the arrangement so that I was no longer on a retainer but was selling on a, a percentage fee or a commission and I continued selling their systems until the point that that became more of a burden than an advantage to have that additional revenue stream. It did fund the early development and it was great. I didn't need much revenue then. It was probably four or five years before I stopped selling the technology into the mining industry altogether. Interesting. So if that took four or five years, were you still working as a single practitioner or were you employing staff and putting funds to build out a team while you were still working within the contract you already had? Yeah, so I was employing people by that stage. It started off very, very slowly. I mean, my first employee, I had an office out the back of my house. It was rare to work out of your house back then. It's interesting how things have come full circle now. I had a part-time, what would have been called a secretary, admin assistant back in those days. Then over the course of time, then I hired more technical people, people who helped a little bit with project management so that I could continue on the sales and marketing side of things. And yeah, as most people who start a business know, you're doing a bit of everything and then you hopefully gradually start taking off one or two of those hats. We'll come back to the change in role because I also find that is really fascinating to understand the drivers for that. But before we do, just again, thinking broadly over the last almost 30 years of running your business, what are you most proud of and why? That's an excellent question. I'm very proud of the fact that I've done it for 30 years, employed people with their families and they've got some meaningful career development out of that and that I'm still standing upright. <laughs> you know, I've just turned 60 and, and I, my health is good and uh, I touch with that it continues because it's not an easy ride. It's it's tough. I have a very supportive wife who works in the business and had it not been for that, it wouldn't have worked. What we've learned over the course of time is that she and I have complementary skills, both of which are necessary for the success of this. And uh, now our son is in the business. He's been in the business for 10 years and he's just moved to London and we're looking at starting into the UK and European market. And so that's a very exciting opportunity. So I feel like we're starting to get to the point that there's a legacy there. But over the course of the time, I think apart from what I said earlier, that I really enjoy the nature of what we do, the fact that we're recycling water, it gives me a kick. It appeals to my technical bent as well as the commercial bent that you're saving water and saving money and making a profitable business. How good is that? We've had people that have stayed with us now for more than 10 years. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the longevity of some of our staff. It isn't an easy thing to keep staff and everybody knows that and particularly in the climate we're sitting in now, I think it's harder than it's ever yeah. been. 
The other part of it is coming back to the fact that we're now in a position that we're exporting this technology to places like Silicon Valley when it's usually the other way around. Some of the senior people that have been with us for a long time, we sit around and we talk about what are we going to do next and it's all focused on doing good work. It's nice to have that luxury to be able to choose the work that you do rather than take what you have to to survive. There is so many things I can follow up on that one and I absolutely agree. Part of the reason we talk about a sustainable business and our drive is or our purpose is creating sustainable business specifically in the small to medium-sized sector. And when you've got a business that is sustainable and you can decide how you want to grow, you can then decide what clients to bring on and really charge the value that you're worth. This might touch on one of your other questions, but one of the things that I've found really important is to be unafraid to reinvent your business model. This was necessary for us. We considered ourselves an equipment supplier. Now we're a, a private water utility. And so we negotiate regulatory approvals, we build systems, we commission them, we operate them. What that gives us is revenue from projects and recurring revenue. And that balance is really healthy. For a long time, we were just reliant on project revenue and any service or ongoing operation support was an afterthought. And now it's to the point that there's enough of it that we have a stable business that we can run from it. And that was a game changer when it got to the point that there was enough of that that we thought if we had no new projects, we could still run the business. Now, it might have meant we, were, we had to, to take some haircuts in certain areas, but you know, if all projects stop, then you've got some recurring revenue. And of course, you have to do the right things by your customers to maintain that. But it really takes the stress away from worrying about where your next meal is going to come from. That's exactly right. our definition of a sustainable company is a company that the owner or founder can decide what they want to do with the business, whether that be prepare it for sale, keep it as a lifestyle business, grow it even bigger. But there, it's at a point where give or take client attrition, but it, it can sustain itself with with limited input or additional input from the owner. Congratulations. It's fantastic to have achieved that. And in creating a sustainable company, a company that has the potential to last decades or generations, and in fact, we're now approaching that with your son who's been in the business for 10 years, the role of the founder, again, something you mentioned earlier, continually changes. What have been the most significant changes in your role? And were these intentional changes? Did you define and decide how you're going to change your role? Or were they driven by specific circumstances? I like to say they're intentional, Rick, but I think very few of them were. You realise a lot about what it takes to run a business when you start that you never knew. It's such a thing that I really have an enormous respect and had an increased respect for anybody who starts or runs a business and the leadership that is required when most people have never done it before. I had a whole new respect when I started for what it takes to do everything and especially from a startup where as I mentioned you've got to take on every hat and you have to learn skills that you didn't have while making sure that you keep it going being able to then take those hats off is is satisfying what I've learned in hindsight is that if you're going to be anything more than a sole trader you have to start thinking like it's not going to be two of us or three of us it's going to be at least 15 because you then have to start putting in processes and procedures 
because you are now an employer and your whole role has changed. I had managed people before, but not to the extent that I had. I had to really learn a whole lot of management skills and I was really doing it on the job. I made lots and lots of mistakes. One of the biggest mistakes I made early because starting everything and having to do everything was that I felt that I needed to touch everything. It's a cliche, people talking about letting go. I struggled with that and I struggled with how to engage people to take more responsibility. And I realized that I was part of the problem is that I was taking credit, not overtly, but inadvertently for their work. All I needed to do was recognize their condition and that would help them be engaged. And I think we all like to be recognized for what we do. Once I realized that it hopefully would grow, it was only going to grow to be a bigger and better business if I leverage the skills of others, that's when I realized that's what I needed to do. So it was a change in mindset more than anything else from me that turned the corner in being able to be more productive as a team, attract a better quality person into the team. When you're starting up a business, people are taking a risk on you. When you're looking for the, the A-grade performers, it's hard to get them to come and join you when you're a startup. Congratulations. I just want to jump back a little bit. Were there specific points in your journey where you decided this is what you need to do now in your role? And what was going on in the business that drove that? What was the context of you making that decision? Yeah, I think that there were a couple. One was this decision to go away from the mining sector and, and go into this different market, which meant that I needed to attract different people and bring in different skills that I didn't have. So it was just something that I had to do to make it work. And But the second one was there was a period of time where I took in some investment from the private equity community and I since bought them out. I was glad I did it and I'm glad I don't have it anymore because I learned an awful lot from it. But then we'd had an injection of capital, which I was under considerable pressure and making all the decisions myself to grow the business faster than I was used to. And that's obviously the point of it all from the private investment point of view. And so then I took on a whole lot of people, but I didn't really have the skills, I don't think, to manage those people and get the best from them. And so it was when all of that was happening and I was under the pump, you know, we were in this, like when you take an investment that, you know, you all of a sudden got to take on people for growth and your cash flow is under huge pressure and you're trying to build the business. And I realized that this was going to fail if I didn't change the way that I was managing the team and managing the business. So it all happened in around a fairly compressed sort of two or three year period where I just shifted the way the organization was structured, put a whole lot more processes and procedures in place. And it settled down after that because then there was a level of professionalism in the business. I had to go and find out how to make the right decisions and put processes in place. And that was a real changing point for, for me. And of course, that means getting outside advice. Thank you. I might just go a bit deeper on the private equity because we all hear in the press these startups that are raising tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. In your experience, especially as an SME business owner, if you had your time again, would you have gone down the road of private equity or raising capital to drive the growth of the business? Or would you have approached it differently? And what are some of the key learnings you've had out of that experience? Yeah, I could phrase the question a little bit differently. If I was going to do another business, would I go and raise private equity? No, I'm glad I did it. And I'm glad I'm no longer in it because I learned an awful lot. And I have that satisfaction to know that it wasn't for me. In an emerging market, it's tricky because people want 
metric around what the market's going to be, how much is this going to grow, and put your bid plan out there for the next, you know, three, five years. And when, when it's an emerging market, nobody knows. The data just doesn't exist. It's very difficult to make forecasts and be held to it, whereas there are certain markets where that's probably yeah. I'm a more of an organic growth person. One of the messages that stuck with me, I saw Dick Smith interviewed one time, and he said, yeah. don't put the house on it, get rich slowly. That's a great insight. And again, it goes back to the concept of a sustainable business and an owner understanding what they want to create. If you're trying to create a unicorn business, then capital might be the way to go. Often, as we see every day in small business, it's the the long journey of a sustainable business that actually is what we're aspiring to grow. Anything wrong with that? For many of us, in fact, for 50% of the Australian economy is driven by small to medium-sized businesses that don't go down that road and can be very successful and satisfying. Yeah. If anyone's considering that, I would ask them to carefully consider this. What is that private equity partner really bring to the table and how is that going to happen? I think most cases when people are investing into it, they're bringing money and that money brings an expectation. You're hoping that the people investing, they have contacts, networks, they're looking for synergies. But generally when it's straight private equity, they're, they're just looking to invest and then they'll get out at an appropriate time. And sure, that's just, there's nothing wrong with that business model. But I think for SMEs, there's a business model that I'm starting to see more of, which is probably more appropriate to a lot more people. And that is, if you're looking for an exit strategy, you look for somebody who is going to buy into the business, take it to the next level. They'll buy and hold. And that means you might get to stay in or you might sell out altogether. But the longer term view is a lot easier to deal with because markets shift so much. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. To springboard off your comment about recognizing people and rewarding them, our perspective, and I think we often lose sight of this, is that a business is a collection of people who need to really work effectively together. What are some of the processes and tools that you use to motivate and mentor staff to get the best out of their team? And how has that changed as your team has grown? There's probably two different areas. One is the way that we have the remuneration package set up, and that is that we have a bonus based on the profitability of the business. So we, you know, people have a base salary and then everyone gets to participate in a bonus. So if we're doing well and we meet our targets, then everyone gets to share in the profit. Then flexibility in the workplace these days and how they value that. And that's a really tricky one that we found to balance. When you're small, you can learn individuals' needs and you can be flexible with your policies when people request it. But what I've learned is not just to give it. I give it to people who've, who've really have been enough, long enough to earn that right. So we have some senior people have, who have a significant amount of flexibility. We have people coming in new and they're asking for that same flexibility straight up. And we say, no, we give you some where it's appropriate. We're not going to institutionalize or embed that into your workplace arrangement because it's not good for you and it's not good for us. We've got to balance the needs of the business and and the needs of the individual when you're new and starting in your career you need to learn from others so you need to be around it or else you're cutting short that flexibility is one that we look at case by case that's one of the things that's kept them here it helps with staff retention before you go off that to give the audience or the listeners a bit more practical understanding can you just give some examples of what you mean by flexibility or what the spectrum of requests that your team has asked for Sure. We're based in Sydney and 
and we were all in one location. We opened up three locations in Sydney, which brings its challenges because you're not all in the one environment. We did this before the pandemic five, six years ago, and that was because some of our people live way in the Blue Mountains and the Northern Beaches and Sutherland Shire. And so we tried to make it so that we could get everyone to work in about half an hour. That is one thing that helps. Some of it's about changes in start and finish time. And that was one that really came through the pandemic. We used to have core hours and now those core hours have shifted. And that brings challenges to the business because there are fewer hours where you are able to collaborate face-to-face. It actually works better than I thought it would because everyone gets used to each other's schedule and we've had to become much more disciplined about things like calendar management so that everyone knows where they are about project management or operations or sales meetings. They're in the calendar and we try to stick to them and then people work around it. It's taken a lot of work to keep that flowing. It makes it a lot easier for people. That's one of the things. Only business owners would really understand that when you're giving flexibility beyond the old school nine to five and everyone in one place. That is requiring the management team to do something more. It's requiring other team members to work around. And so what we try to do now is articulate that better when people make a request for flexibility. We walk through that process with them to try to come up with a balance that works for the business and the individual. That's not just an investment of time. Having three offices is a financial investment, mm. so it's obviously something that's key to you. That was a great understanding of how you motivate and retain staff. What about mentoring and managing staff? How do you mentor and manage staff to get the best out of them? It starts with the recruiting process. Firstly, looking for a cultural fit and articulating what the culture is here during the recruiting process, which is something that I couldn't have even articulated in the early days. I wouldn't have known what what words to use because I didn't think we even had a culture. Now we do, and we're clear about it. And that helps to get people with the right attitude, aptitude, fit, versatility. That's what we're looking for. The rest we can train them on because it is a niche market. We don't always expect that people are going to come in knowing It takes people at least six months to settle into any role in this business. And even if they're very experienced, there's a lot of on-the-job training and we make that clear. And we have some processes, some onboarding processes, which we are building up and building up. One of the things that we've learned is that we take the onboarding process much more formally and seriously because we recognise that the importance of starting how you intend to continue and creating the right expectation from the beginning rather than bringing people in and then adding an expectation or changing their role. So better articulating what is the expectation. I think it's just getting to understand the individual and what really motivates them and talking to them about what they're looking for in their next steps or what they're looking for to make them happy and doing my best doing our best to find that opportunity for them. We define the role of marketing is to help articulate the purpose and promise of the business, first to the team, then to clients, and finally to new prospects. In our language, we call this marketing on the inside and then marketing on the outside. This is driven by the insight that effective leaders articulate and communicate the vision and direction so the teams know where they're going and can independently get there. A lot of what you're talking about in your response there really talks to some of those points. To go a little bit deeper, how do you ensure your team continually understands why the business exists and the value that you want to create for your clients? Can you share any of the rituals or habits 
that you use to keep your vision top of mind? The rituals are that we have a company catch up twice a week, Zoom, that hopefully everyone attends. It only goes for 15 or 20 minutes. There's a bit of a rhythm to it and that we go around the, the Zoom room and ask people what they're working on. purpose of it, and I often reinforce this, the purpose of it is so that one can see what everyone else is doing. People get to know their colleagues better when they're distributed. Keeping that vision top of mind is something that I bring in and out on some semi-regular frequency, but I always try to bring that into the conversation as, as many times as possible, but not too many. Because when people are doing their jobs, it's very much about the nuts and bolts of doing their job. For many people, that's what's most important to them. And the big picture is something that can sometimes overwhelm people. But I do like to keep it front of mind. One, most people understand the, what's going on in the execution side of the business, but the execution people don't understand what's going on in the sales and marketing side. I do try to talk about what we are doing in the sales and marketing and why and try to make that relatable to yeah. people. So a lot of that's done through the projects. This is who we're talking to. This is why they're interested in what we're doing. This is a great opportunity. It's exciting and it's sort of selling the vision. The other thing that we did, and I think this would really resonate with you as a, as a marketing expert, Rick, some years ago, we got a marketing expert in to help us articulate and get the right words together. We distilled really our message and it resulted in quite a few changes beyond the branding, the message that goes out to the customer. It was able to bring us to that internal marketing and articulate what we're about better so that people understood what we're about better. So it was extremely valuable beyond my expectation, which I know is the kind of thing that you want to hear. Every now and then I dust off that report and bring it up for those people who are new to make them understand and that this is where we've come from, this is what we're doing, and this is why, and this is the message that we want to present externally, but of course internally. That is a, a great example of what we define as what we call marketing on the inside. And in fact, it, that for us is far more critical than any marketing you do to prospects in the context of lead generation. You're a business that has purpose built into it. And the more people are connected to that purpose, the more they're excited to talk about it. And the more they will engage with their clients because they're passionate about the purpose. So for us, marketing it starts on the inside and that drives success everywhere else. And that's just a great example of how that's worked in your business. So thank you for sharing that. Following off that, which is again another springboard, but to go quite a different direction, when I talk to business owners, I often get told that referral and recommendations are the most effective source for new leads, but often referrals are more by luck than by intention. How do you generate most of your leads for new business? And is this a systemized and repeatable solution. We have created enough awareness in our market that the referrals come to us mostly through repeat business or through work that we have done in creating awareness previously. It is a constraint that we have in order to grow our business further. We're just at a point where we've got a lot of work on and going out and prospecting for Morris is something that too often fall behind. And so is it systematized? Sure, we have systems, we have a CRM, we have customer records, 
We know who to talk to, but we don't get out there often enough. If there's one weakness in our business, that's it. We, we get most of our business through referrals. And only that is making sure that we have looked after a customer in the past. I've always said to our team and anyone who will listen, if you're in doubt about what to do, make sure you put the customer first because we're always balancing those budgets with our own and that's the case for any business. And obviously you're trying to do your best to maximize the profitability of your business. But if you're in doubt, put the customer first. Putting the customer first is something that I consider has been very helpful for us to, you know, long, long-term long sustainable business. And that helps bring referrals rather than any other marketing approach. But we're, we're the kind of business that I think is really just scratching the surface because we're not as active in marketing as we could be. One of the things that's I found a challenge at the moment, we used to go out and make sales calls. And we would call on consulting engineers and have lunchtime presentations and we would just go and have a meeting in their office. It's much, much harder to get those meetings now. And people, particularly the next generation of people coming through, look for information through the internet, Google searching, social media. So your online presence is just so much more important now than it used to be to the point that I think it's to me it's getting to the point that if you don't have a decent a decent online presence you don't have a marketing campaign and the kind of things that we used to rely on much more personal relationships they're just so much harder to make and so when you get the opportunity to have one boy you better hang on to it yeah. with, both, with both hands and make sure it's good because yeah. The opportunities are fewer and farther between. It's interesting. Just to go back to your comment around doing what's right for the customer, the model or the overarching framework that we use to define that or work through for us and with our clients is, are we building and creating a remarkable experience for our clients? And if we could have a red carpet experience for every one of our clients, we know we don't have to worry about advertising end of marketing or even your comment around a social presence because every client will then happily bring in new people because of the remarkable transformation that we've created. And it sounds like you've either intentionally or unintentionally have built the same sort of proposition within your business. Fundamentally, yeah. Do, do the job well and you'll get more business, hopefully. That's hopeful. You've mentioned systems and processes a few times. And again, one of the comments that I often read and hear about is that creating systems and processes is one of the most common answers of why a business has been successful over an extended period of time. And in fact, in your early answers, as you were developing the business, it reached a point where you said that you had to put in some systems and processes. Could you tell us about a system or process that has had a significant impact on your success, what the system was? process and what impact it created? I'll pick on one or two. As a private utility, we have to have a lot of processes and procedures, much more than a small business would normally have because we get audited by state regulators just like the public utilities do. It's a challenge to make sure that you have all the processes and procedures in place, but make sure that they absolutely have no fat or there's nothing unnecessary in there because otherwise they just don't get followed or they're phony. We have this integrated management system boring name for it, but we have it on an internet and make it available to people. And we articulate to people that those processes are there for a good reason and don't shortcut them. If you see an opportunity for improvement, bring that up. We'll talk about it. 
and we'll make a formal decision whether to change the process. That's part of the how we manage processes and procedures. Are there one or two that have made the difference? I think a good mission description and a clear organisation chart and a good division of roles and responsibilities makes it much easier for everybody to see where they're fit, see what other people are doing and know whether they're doing their job with inside the process of procedures and when they're outside that. What I have learned to do over the time is try to get the procedures in place so that you're managing by exception. In the early days of trying to create all these processes, people would come up, well, what about this one? What about that one? And then we go, oh, we've got to put that one in the procedure and that one in the procedure. And these things become bloated and useless. We have to make a decision that we say, okay, we're just going to go with the core. Often I say, if you think you're going outside a procedure, come to me. I'll help you with strategy. I'll help you with priorities. And that's what I try to articulate as my most important role in running the team is I'm here to help you with strategy and I'm here to help you with priority management. That's great. Thank you for that. A couple more questions. A great strategy is focused on the most impactful activities for a company. Our experience has shown that at any point, a company can only really effectively work on a finite number of projects or priorities, typically three or four. Can you talk about one or two of your current strategic initiatives and the decision process you used to determine those priorities? One that I mentioned earlier, we've opened up a London office in the last couple of weeks. So that's a strategic initiative to go into a new market sector. There's more work we could do in Australia and there's certainly more work we could be, be doing in the US, but we're looking to replicate the successful approach we have in the US into the UK and EU market. We don't know whether there's really strong market opportunity for us yet. There's a lot of things that we have to investigate. So it took us a long time to generate work in the US. It took us five years to get our first contract and we expected it'll be quicker over there. But what we realized is that rather than try to go back and forward and do it from here, which was a real grind to send somebody over there who knows the business well from, from here, they've relocated there and they're settling down there and they, they're going to have a crack at that new market. And we hope it doesn't take us five years, but yeah, it's an interesting, great. exciting initiative, but we just feel that the timing is right. That's one. Before you go on to another yep. one, what was the context of what was going on in the business that made you decide to go to London and open a European office? Or what was the decision process you used to to decide that? And was it a, over years that you looked at it or was it a reasonably quick decision? It's been over the last few years. We had one person in our team who wanted to go over there and live and we probably were going to lose him and I convinced him to consider this opportunity and he thought about it and did some research and he took it up to his credit. It goes back to what I said earlier about being aware of what people were looking for yeah. and try to marry those two. We've started to see more inquiries coming to our website from that part of the world, which we weren't seeing four years ago. We've seen interest from potential partners over there, which we would enter into a partnership with somebody more than likely. We just feel that the time is right to do that. Always being someone who looks at what the downside risk is, that person still has some responsibilities here that he can conduct over there while he's establishing a market presence. It's a low risk proposition. That's but great. high possible reward. Excellent. My final question, and it pivots off that one as well, thinking longer term, so you're obviously already instigated recently the opening of the European office, but thinking a longer term, what are some of the next strategic initiatives that you are thinking about implementing to continue your success and what do you hope they will achieve? I think it's starting to change the way that we do things. We've talked about this emerging market. It's been emerging for a long time and now it's really, I think, 
the tipping point is here. In order to take advantage of that timing, I have to start running things differently. So I can spend more time business development and marketing, looking to put in more people in place internally so that I have fewer internal roles, looking at putting a structure in there that probably going to mean a board and that I may step aside from being the managing director and sit on the board and bring in a general manager. I've been looking for the right people to do that and change this organizational structure so I can focus more on those strategic developments and also being open to different business models about how to deliver that. It's all been mission agreements or joint ventures. Maybe we look at some investment from partners, not the way that we did it before, but differently to ramp up the rate of growth. There are some technical things that we can do to reduce the cost of our product to make them cheaper to build. And if we were to half the cost of them, we wouldn't sell double, but we'd sell much more. It gets a lower price point that makes more economic sense in many, many more opportunities. And so, you know, working on a couple of those things. That's great. I couldn't have asked for a better way to end a discussion about what drives a sustainable success for a business and the, the ever-changing role of a founder than you using that as an example. So Colin, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your open and honest answers and even a bit of a plug for how we work and what we do. So thank you for joining <laughs> us. And I look forward to watching the continuous success of your UK office. And I'm still waiting to find out if your son has dared to drink some of the water that you've purified. Well, I don't think he has, but we'll have to ask him. Yeah, yeah we'll have to, I think. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much.